This episode comes with a trigger warning. There will be mention of sexual assault in chapter negative 31. Episode 8 of the audiobook slash podcast project called Unconscious Subconscious, voiced, written, and produced by me, Matt Rebar. Chapter negative 30. He's black. One. I grabbed Shelly's hand and tried my best to appear normal, even though she had just confessed that the land we were on was her plantation. This was perhaps a large part of why the South was seen as such a bad location in Gignosco and why some of the warnings as recently as Jelaya had been strong in regards to this area. The black duo behind Miss Shelley were slaves, and their apprehension most likely was guided by Miss Shelley, the head of the plantation. Oh, goodness, nice to meet you, I feigned. My name is Sydney. Why, Sydney, why don't I take you on a tour of the property? Miss Shelley gasped delight, as if she was going to take us out for ice cream. Would you like that? I would. I don't get too many visitors. Absolutely. I didn't want to upset Miss Shelley, considering I had appeared to be snooping on her property. Miss Shelley snapped her hands, and immediately her two servants bolted over to a nearby electrified caravan. They returned, and immediately Miss Shelley and I got into the raised back seat. You know the route. Miss Shelley barked at her two personal assistants. Miss Shelley did not need to question again as the caravan hooked up to the nearby dirt path and began riding past the large estate. This is the estate. Dushine. Miss Shelley called out the estate name like it was a lover who could successfully tittle her biscuits. Dushine was built by the early slaves who also tended to the fields at the same time. My granddaddy worked them to the bone, as we should. We shall see Dushine at the end of the interior work is fabulous. The caravan drove into the fields, a small path opening up between large segments. Handfuls of black men and women lay scattered to work, picking away at cotton, fruits, vegetables, and starch. Their hands were filled with ruin, while their bodies were defeated in captivity. These humans had become animals, and not due to their own choice. I had to continue telling myself that none of this was real, and that it was basically a dream. Otherwise, I would have most likely been overwhelmed with terror. We grow everything around here, Miss Shelley explained to me, while her servants guided us through the fields. The servants nearest to the traveling caravan would bow and curtsy in the presence of Miss Shelley, while some stared as we moved on by. I could tell that Miss Shelley was the kind who ruled by intimidation and reputation, the kind of individual who was toxic to everything in their life. There was nothing sweet about her, even with the disguised sugar-sweet voice and the cute gender non-conforming clothes. To add another level, there were plenty of female and male guards, all white, watching over the workers. All were strapped with guns which appeared to come out of the 1910s, and a couple other weapons including pepper spray and cuffs. Everything. I inquired, unsure what to say. Cotton, apples, oranges, carrots, potatoes, peas, everything. We do a lot of trade with the settlement north of here. They make shit we buy, and then, of course, they sell a lot of shit into Gnosko, as do we. You've probably had some of our produce without knowing it. I was horrified at the thought. Wait a minute, Miss Shelley muttered. Pessy, stop the caravan. Pessy braked the caravan so hard that I almost flew out of the car. 
Miss Shelley didn't even move. Instead, she lowered her leg and stepped off the caravan. I followed her in apprehension at what was happening. Miss Shelley walked a few steps before coming to a complete stop. She bent down and grabbed something before revealing a small plum pit. Who the fuck ate one of my plums? Miss Shelley screamed. Her soft, welcoming voice had escalated into pure wrath. All the nearby slaves watched Miss Shelley in horror as she held up the plum pit for the world to see. It didn't take two seconds to piece together that eating the product was a huge no-no. Well, getting caught was the true no-no. I'd ask again, Miss Shelley cried out, using her parental figure voice. If someone doesn't come forward, I will whip all of your asses now. The guards now came forward, all looking around as if trying to be sympathetic with Miss Shelley's slaves. The truth was that the guards were just as shitty as Miss Shelley. No matter the excuse, slavery was abhorrent. But this type of slavery had a particular rage which bubbled in the tone of Miss Shelley. Someone has five seconds or you all will pay. The threat was clearly heard as a young black boy by the age of ten came forward. He was thin, a growing boy who clearly needed extra food to keep up with both the demands of his body and Miss Shelley. I ate the plum, Miss Shelley, the boy whispered. I was just so hungry. What's your name? She asked, more so because she could strip him of his name's dignity than to actually inquire about his identity. Um, Paul. Paul, is it? Miss Shelley stepped closer to the boy, her boots slamming into the earth with the intent of creating power through movement. She was an active woman, not passive like you'd assume from such a teeny southern belle. Miss Shelley wanted to prove that fucking with her was the worst mistake one could make in their short, goddamn life. How long have you been working in my farms, child? All my life. All your goddamn life. Yes, ma'am. Then you should know my rules, shouldn't you? There should be no excuse. Miss Shelley raised the pit and shoved it into Paul's mouth. The young black boy seized up as she opened his jaws. He appeared like a snake eating food which was normally too big to fit within his cavity. Her entire wrist and the plump pit grasped hand was deep within the boy's throat. He struggled slightly as if he was trying to breathe, but Miss Shelley was not letting up. How's that plum for you? Miss Shelley whispered. Her shocking blue eyes were lit with power. Is it just as juicy as the flesh you stole from me? She ripped her hand back and tossed the pit back into the field's floor. The rest of the guards were curious to their boss's movements, while some of the field help appeared either unable to watch or were in prayer for the life of Paul. Miss Shelley pulled out her shotgun from her side and aimed it at the boy. So, you stole my plum. What should I steal from you? Miss Shelley questioned. Uh, uh, no, don't speak. Miss Shelley spat. If everyone got to enjoy a fruit salad, I wouldn't have any product to sell, would I? Racism always played a key role for a black man like I. It was weird. I was distant with my race. I don't know if I was ashamed or what exactly made me more quote-unquote white. Classmates would occasionally make comments. Peers would make implications. I had a co-worker early on who believed I was in the government because I was black and not necessarily because I was good at my job. As a minority, you had to work 150% harder 
than everyone else, but sometimes you were only viewed as doing 50%. Those who say racism is gone, those who say homophobia is limited, those who say sexism is a thing of the past, well, they're most likely involved in those prejudices. I've never been someone who believes you can purge prejudice. The truth is that you should tame prejudice, realize what prejudices you have, and then work around them. Someone who didn't realize was Shelley Reynolds. Reynolds wasn't a computer programmer, but was the human resources staff member who oversaw the segment of the government agency I was part of. Reynolds seemed like a great person. She looked good on paper and acted good on the small occasion, but she was racist, very outwardly so. She'd ask me if I wanted watermelon sherbet at the faculty lunch or how it was like to grow up in the ghetto. She believed somewhat that her white influence would save me, akin to the conquistadors in Central America or the crusaders of Christian ancestry. People have a fondness for conversion. Miss Shelley put her shotgun back on her side, and the majority of the witnesses released a pent-up sigh. It didn't seem like Miss Shelley was going to hurt Paul after all. She approached him and raised her porcelain hand which grazed the boy's cheek. The boy lowered his guard, as did the audience and I. I was the only fool, though, for this was my first impression of Miss Shelley. The rest of them should have known. With a simple one-two maneuver, Miss Shelley raised a medium-sized knife, which was also on her side, and immediately cut the boy's hand off. The crowd shrieked, while the guards all looked on with widened eyes. I couldn't tell if this was a common occurrence or rare. Even if this happened once a day, I felt as though my reaction would have been the same. I want this. Miss Shelley shrugged as she held Paul's hand. She stared directly into Paul the entire time. The boy collapsed, blood covering the field around him. The blood-fed crops shook slightly from the wind and the ruckus. Let that be a lesson, Miss Shelley snarled. You're not here to have a feast. You are here to work. So get back to work. The field help immediately returned to their business while a couple of the armed guards milled around. Take him to the infirmary. Miss Shelley sighed as she tossed Paul's right hand onto the field's floor near the plum pit. See if they can reattach the arm. For some reason, stealing it was more fun than utilizing it. During this entire time, I had remained in the caravan, as had Pessy and the other personal servant. Miss Shelley holstered herself up, and the cart continued. The guards did indeed take Paul and his hand and began walking to the infirmary, which was clearly nowhere close. I did not speak, for how could I? I had just watched this bitch take out a kid over a plum. I just love the view. Miss Shelley sighed as she leaned back on the cushion, placing her left foot over her right knee. She acted like nothing gruesome had happened. It is a nice view. I added while the caravan rounded the curve. The slaves continued to work hard even with the potential death of a child, their bodies covered with sweat, age acting quickly upon them for their hard, back-breaking work. The caravan rounded one of the many fields and returned to Dushine. The land went on for such a long time. In the distance, I could see slave quarters and, as Miss Shelley explained, the vast amount of fields under her plantation. Miss Shelley was a very interesting mind. Normally, I could witness a human who might not be the most sensitive, especially if they grew up without diversity in their environment. 
Humans are naturally prejudicial, so it makes sense that some people do more than merely harbor their prejudice. Those who work on their prejudices are more acceptable to those who succumb to them. Acts of discrimination are terrible, and the people behind them are fucked up. But Miss Shelley wasn't a casual racist or the occasional lynch mob attendee. She was a woman who thought blacks were nothing more than her utilized tools. She saw them as property, so beneath her that they deserved nothing better than to work without benefit. She had ripped off a boy's hand for eating a plum. You didn't do that to a boy you considered human. The caravan arrived back at Dushine, and we all cleared out. Pessy and the other assistant followed Miss Shelley, although one of the guards approached Miss Shelley, trying his best to appear professional. They couldn't save the child, the one guard explained to Miss Shelley. He's dead. It is what it is. Perhaps through death, the others will take the message strongly. Miss Shelley opened the front door to Dushine and turned to me. You are planning to stay the night, right? Pessy can show you to the guest room you can utilize. That sounds great. I nodded and turned to Pessy. Thank you very much. Don't thank her. Miss Shelley told me in a scolding manner. This is her job. It's to be expected. Miss Shelley told me she'd call me for dinner in a few, but to take the time to rest up. Pessy walked with me through Dushine, which was a beautiful estate, but the beauty came with an ugliness that could not be defined or connected to something tangible. I could feel the slaves who worked this building. I could feel the power and control, the shed blood. It made the chandelier's crystals look like daggers. The painted portraits of Miss Shelley's family looked like the descriptors of devils. I was feeling sick, so thankfully we arrived at the guest room. So is this a thing? I questioned, looking at Pessy. Pessy immediately closed the door to the room, leaving us just alone within the guest room. I took a closer look at Pessy. She was perhaps 20 or so, although she felt older. The amount of pain, pressure, and fatigue had transformed her, like everyone within Miss Shelley's grip. Her hair was kept wrapped up in a bonnet, which continued to aid the impression of 1860s and 1920s Americana. Yes, this exists, Pessy nodded. You mustn't have heard the stories of this place. I apologize that this is overwhelming, but there are bigger stories that lay around here. How does this exist? There is no international police here in Gignasco. If we were in Cultura City or something, Miss Shelley would be arrested. But out here on her own land, she can do whatever she wants. How did her family grab this land and these slaves? I, I don't know the history too well, Pessy admitted. But apparently Mrs. Elton, Miss Shelley's family is, is from Cultura City, but decided to build a business. They were always white elitists. I heard they kidnapped a slew of black men and women, made them give birth to plenty of children, and continued to kidnap some more, force us to work with hired guards as well. It's just, it's just fucked. What can I do? I don't know what you can do. The system's so ingrained here. There has to be something I can do. Why do you care? Pessy questioned, looking confused. You're not black. You're not affected by this. You don't know what it's like or what we've been through. You can leave this place without having to deal with Miss Shelley's wrath. You saw what she did to Paul out there. What do you think she'll do to you if she hears your planet let her slaves free? I, I appreciate your anger and concern, but Mr. Sidney, it would be foolish to risk yourself like this. You cannot take her down, no matter how disgusted you are with her. Pessy opened the door. Please let me know if you need anything, sir. Pessy closed the door behind her. 
Two hours later, I was seated for dinner with Miss Shelley and a few of her family members. I was still disgusted with Miss Shelley's plantation and the existence of Dushine. I was trying my best, though, to appear normal and eat the food placed in front of me. Miss Shelley's parents and grandparents and brother were all seated. Interestingly, though, it was Miss Shelley who ran the plantation while her brother did some, quote, contracting, end quote, which to me seemed to imply that he bought and sold slaves. Miss Shelley's mother handled logistics while her father ran the finances. The grandparents, who both looked pale and crusty like a jar of mayonnaise left open too long, were retired. So, what are you doing here? What brought you here? Miss Shelley questioned me during the finale of dessert. I had heard many of the family's current concerns which were addressed during the meal, and Miss Shelley's parents and brother departed prior to dessert. The only people left at the table besides Miss Shelley and I were Miss Shelley's grandparents, who seemed like comatose victims more so than humans. You'd laugh at me if I told you what I was looking for. I promise I won't laugh, Sydney. I'm the grave of my my great-great-grandparents. Nice correction there, I winked, feeling myself a better actor than earlier in the meal. I'm doing some spiritual research. That's a broad topic, Miss Shelley snorted. That could mean anything. Practically anything. Exactly, that's what I love about it. So what are you looking into? I'm looking into Clark and his powers of lavender. Oh, the slaves tell many stories of Clark and lavender. What have you heard? What haven't I heard? Miss Shelley lifted her wine glass and chugged another large sip. The slaves tell stories of how Clark has come to them and how he promises paradise for the slaves. They say he views me as a scourge and is trying to get rid of me and my family. They say the clock is black too, just like them. It's all audacious, especially the claim the clock is black. Goodness. What's next? Clock wants to have sex with a man? Miss Shelley laughed at the idea of the leader of Gignosco being black. I didn't have the heart or the balls to tell her that Clark would be black if I were to meet him. What do they say about lavender? <laughs> they don't call it lavender on these fields, boy. Miss Shelley shook her head. The slaves whisper about the code. Apparently, what lavender truly is, is nothing more than a formulaic system. The code is a more appropriate term. Do you believe in the code, or do you believe in lavender? I think they both reference the same thing. I suppose to me, I've always said and associated it with lavender. I guess it's the slaves who call it the code. Might be easier for them, linguistics-wise. If Clark exists, where do you think he would physically be? No idea, Miss Shelley shrugged. If I rang Ignasco, I'd personally be in Cultura City. Clark isn't there. You know this? Clark is supposedly in the South, somewhere down here in the Inner Realm. How can you be so sure? I'm not, it's just that's the only information I have, so I'm going with it. In the South, Miss Shelley sighed. You know what they say about the South. I do. Miss Shelley chuckled as if she had been caught. She didn't consider herself guilty, no. She believed in systematic slavery, but she enjoyed it regardless of how it might appear. You don't like what I do. You don't like what my family has done. I can't say that I do. <laughs> you northerners deny yourself a bit. Miss Shelley shrugged and grabbed more wine, leaving a lipstick imprint on the glass. The difference isn't inherently a bad thing. Down here, 
one more our true selves. Up there, you hide your true self for the generalized other. Is that a bad thing? I asked as the devil's advocate. Is limiting your identity for the rights of other people's own identities a problem? Or are we supposed to crash at this point where we're our own slaves? Before I could answer, a guard came in looking a little sweaty and uncollected. Mia Shelley, we have a fight happening in Hall 2. On my way. Miss Shelley stood up with her shotgun and knife on her side. We'll talk again, I'm sure, Sydney. But for now, take it easy and enjoy your time in Dushine. Miss Shelley left with the guard and I soon left the dinner table. I appeared back in my room and took a long shower in the bathroom. I wished a television or even a radio was in the guest bedroom. Instead, I treated myself to one of the magazines on the table in the middle of the room. Soon enough, I was asleep. I didn't sleep for too long, for I awoke in the middle of the night. I had a nightmare that I was one of the slaves in Miss Shelley's fields. It had been a vivid dream. I could feel the thin drips of sweat which had collected from my unconscious experience. How weird was it that I was unconsciously dreaming while being nothing more than a directed consciousness from an unconscious body outside of Gignosco? I didn't even try and question it. How do you end racism and prejudice? Can you end it? Or will it inherently continue like some kind of triumphed brat? It's almost like Clark King was egging me on. Pessy told me to keep my head down, but could I? On Earth, I could. I would be able to turn an eye and not think badly about it. But it was like Clark was fidgeting my head to change the gears and wires of my machine to cause this emotional plunge. I wanted to do something. But what could I do? I got out of bed and immediately plunged myself deep into Dushine's manor. I noticed that there were night guards, just a couple who monitored the premises. I snuck by all of them and got out to the garden. The garden was currently calm and I went through the plants. There were no guards here, thankfully, but there were guards out by the halls of slaves. These halls were kept behind the manor and the manor's gardens and looked like low-ceiling warehouses. I took out the guards using stealth tactics and choked them out before I quickly opened the nearest hall, which stirred to life with the slaves. They looked at me in confusion as I quickly commanded order. I took out the guards, I said strongly. Get out of here, leave this land, and be free. Don't let Miss Shelley and her command keep you here. Originally, no one moved, but some of the slaves finally had the guts to run out of the hall and into the nearby forest which was behind the warehouses. I opened the remaining three warehouses and all the slaves began to filter into the forest. Why are you guys going into the forest? I asked the one man who looked eager to escape. Forest will give us cover. Then we can leave this goddamn rock in Gignosco. He shook my hand before running after the rest of the enslaved people. After everyone had cleared out, I decided to head back into Dushine and go back to bed. I was thriving with the rushes of adrenaline and of the thwart of evil. But the feelings were soon over as I entered a small clearing in the garden. The clearing had a couple benches and tables made out of stone and a large sundial. Waiting there for me, as if she had known all along, was Miss Shelley. Her shotgun was on her side, and a sword was in her hand. I thought I would just want to shoot you, but I think I want something more slow and satisfying. Miss Shelley's southern sweet charm had evolved into an enraged business owner. I pulled out Helena Price's sword and looked ahead to Miss Shelley with a sneer. How did you know? You don't think my guards immediately could sense that a thousand slaves just abandoned my property? 
Miss Shelley snarled. You took some of them out. That was cute. But that didn't mean that you took out all the guards. I awoke and immediately readied myself. I thought like you and realized you'd come back into my house and act like you weren't involved. It was a perfect plan you had, at least until I intervened. Miss Shelley stepped forward and we engaged into a sword fight. Miss Shelley was decent, although I wasn't sure if that came from skill or rage. The swords cut across into each other, and I danced carefully so that I didn't end up dead by her blade. Where are your guards? I can handle you, Miss Shelley snorted. My guards need to track down the slaves you let free. You won't get them all back. You won't set them all free. Miss Shelley knocked me down to the floor, and I twisted to avoid the metal, which swiped down and hit the stone sundial. I twisted to hit her, and she also dodged that, although my blade managed to cut into her blouse and knocked off a few buttons. Miss Shelley's giant globes popped out and she scoffed as she continued the fight. Her blade came close to taking out my hand, but I pulled my wrist back like a baseball player at bat. She scoffed and leapt forward, the blade in thrust position. I turned slightly as her blade missed my kidney and I slammed my blade down upon her wrist and hilt. Miss Shelley gasped and dropped the blade and with a large kick, her blade flew through the air and landed on the other side of the large garden opening. I knew she was going to grab her shotgun, so I immediately opened my bag and pulled out my own while placing my sword away. With both guns pointed at one another, we once again mimicked a standstill. I thought you were a powerful motherfucker like me. Miss Shelley barked to me, gun still raised while I held up my own. I knew you didn't like what I did, but I thought you'd leave it alone. You could have just left it alone and you would have lived. Sorry, but that's not me. You're putting a cramp into my operation, but you are far from destroying it. Miss Shelley chuckled, the shotgun aimed at me. Did you think freeing a thousand slaves would end me? Especially with a few more thousand far on the other side of my property. It's cute, really, Sydney. You thought you were saving the day, but if anything, you were a sloppy bitch. I should have kicked you off my property when I originally came across you. Do you hate me, Sydney? Do you hate me for my slaves? Cousin Gignosco, I'm far from being the worst human. You can't look at me and say you're a good human. Who cares about these blacks, Sydney? I know, I, I don't know why you care. You're a white man, the best type of man. But instead, you're just as black as my slaves. The only difference is that you acted up, so you need a consequence. Before Miss Shelley could continue her rants, a large vase slammed into her head. Miss Shelley tumbled like a sack of potatoes onto the garden sundial. I looked to Miss Shelley's attacker to find a pajamaed Pessie who was breathing heavily. Get out of here. The guards are coming. Pessie whispered in a mannerism which raised goosebumps on my skin. This was no doubt her thank you, as I turned to run deeper into the large garden estate. I could hear the vase break fully as Pessie left the scene she had aided, but I couldn't think about Pessie because I could see ten guards ahead. They were armed and had flashlights as well. Utilizing the garden space I knew, I could sneak up on most of the guards. I took out one from behind the daisies, utilized a sharp stone fountain to bash another guard's face in, hid in the bush to take down a third, smashed a man's head open with a garden gnome, took out a guard by using a sharp branch and my left hand to choke him. The sixth guard had found the second guard, aka Fountain Bashed Head, and I used the same fountain to take him down. I finally pulled out my gun and took out the last four with bullets. I arrived back at the slave halls and decided to enter the forest in flight from Miss Shelley and her guards. 
Chapter negative 31. He's black, too. And so am I. The purple sky was practically black, although it was the canopy of the deciduous forest which made the situation darker. I could see both slaves and guards running in a hurry to escape and in a hurry to collect the slaves. I couldn't tell where the edges of the rock were, but I wanted to get away as far as possible. On my route to go further into the forest, I came upon a couple guards which required me to take them down. I didn't want to keep killing the guards, but I had to value my life above all else, as well as the freedom of Miss Shelley's slaves. Finally, it seemed like I had traveled so deep that neither guards nor slaves were in the area. I continued moving, slowly this time, as I allowed my body to come down from full-on flight mode. I came across a path, but decided to stay off the path, although I used the path to keep moving forward. As the night slowly became dawn, I was witness to a small gathering of guards, all belonging to Miss Shelley. We've only been able to capture a hundred back or so, the one guard muttered. Miss Shelley ain't gonna be happy. The beast shouldn't have let these random stranger on the property, the second guard explained. He was gonna be a liability somewhere in the system. He was an northerner. They have big hearts, they do, the third scoffed. But Miss Shelley, who knows what she's gonna do? The first mentioned again, clearly scared of her. I haven't seen her this angry in a long time. I thought she was going to kill Sydney, or whatever the white man's name is, the third asked. She was, but then she got knocked out by one of the garden vases. A fourth side. She doesn't know who knocked her out. She guesses it was one of the slaves who escaped. As if summoned with magic, Miss Shelley and her caravan appeared on the dirt road. Pessy and the second assistant, whose name I never found out, were driving while Miss Shelley looked absolutely cooked in the back seat. How are we looking? Miss Shelley asked. Have we found Sidney? No, we have not, the second guard explained. He's been quite elusive. We may believe he had fled the rock altogether. Maybe he went south to the other compounds, another guard shrugged. Well, if he went to free the rest of my slaves, he'll have another thing coming, Miss Shelley cheered with evil pleasure. I have a plethora of guards waiting for someone to show up and try something. I want him to try something. How are we on the slaves? We're at 10% recapture. That's too low, Miss Shelley barked. Keep looking, men. We will, ma'am, the first guard nodded with vigor. Bessie, let's drive up ahead to the town, Miss Shelley commanded, clearly still a bitch to her slaves. Yes, ma'am, Bessie nodded. As the caravan continued moving, the whole while I was only 20 feet away. The four guards walked, thankfully, to the west of the path, while I was on the east side of the path. I continued moving forward for a long while until I arrived outside a shack. The shack was small and wooden, built in a small clearing, and connected to the main path by a small thin path. There was a truck parked outside the shack, but otherwise the land looked simple. I walked around the shack, but had no intention of knocking on the door or otherwise bothering the shack. Before I could enter the forest again, the front door to the shack opened up and revealed a redneck-looking guy who wore a flannel short sleeve button-up with an open hairy chest, a camouflage hat which pressed down on his honey-brown hair and jean shorts. He was a little husky, but nothing too serious. His beard hair was the same brown and was scraggly, uneven, and provided intense sideburns as well. "'Hello, sir. How are you?' the man smiled. "'What are you doing in this neck of the woods? You look like a traveler.' I am. I just traveled here from the fallout. Oh, goodness, you poor thing. Well, I was going to go in town if you want to ride. The man stepped forward and shook my hand. I'm Mr. Wyatt. I'm Mercer. I didn't want to use Sydney, and thankfully I had not told my last name to Miss Shelley back on the plantation. 
Nice to meet you, Mr. Wyatt. We can go to town. I have a quick meeting. You can sit on on in, and we can then come back here, and you can rest before traveling more so. Mr. Wyatt smiled, looking quite happy to have a new companion. Sorry if this sounds too much for you. I just figured, yeah, could use a little trip to town and then a nice rest. You're a pretty bold guy, but I'll take the offer. I didn't want to outright refuse, especially because that would look suspicious. I was trying my best to look neutral and not appear to be some potential slave freer. I wasn't sure what he knew or didn't know, but I figured a trip away from Shelley's plantation had more pros than cons. Mr. Wyatt walked to his car and I hopped into the passenger. The car circled the shack before taking the small side path. So where are you from, bud? Mr. Wyatt asked. I'm from Dahlia Village. Another lie which slid like warm butter off toast. Oh, very nice, Mr. Wyatt nodded. I haven't been there, but I heard of it. It's a good place. So what brings you down south? To a nice vacation kind of trip, I lied, looking over at Mr. Wyatt as he hooked onto the main road. It's been exhilarating so far. It's great. Well, let me tell you a bit about these parts then. Mr. Wyatt's voice was sultry and sweet like pork with an apple or orange-flavored chicken. He was, like Miss Shelley and his gang, filled with the southern twang and spirit. I felt like I could be driving somewhere in the deep south of America. A lot of the men and women around here live in the forest clearings. It's very peaceful and simple. But there's a small town in the middle of the forest. That's where we're heading. Indeed, the forest broke apart a little bit to show a small hick town. There was a city hall, a police department, a fire station, a library, and what looked to be a meeting hall. A grocery, a hardware store, and a few other necessary buildings were snuggled between the main parts of town. Otherwise, the place was quite simple in structure. Mr. Wyatt parked his truck next to some of the other cars in front of the meeting hall. We both jumped out, and across the way I saw a small town sign which said, White Town. I immediately grew apprehensive about this location and about Mr. Wyatt. This seemed to be a continuation of Miss Shelley's plantation. Come on inside with me. Mr. Wyatt smiled. Unless, do you need supplies? I think I'm good, I shrugged. I'll just tag along to your meeting. Suit yourself. Mr. Wyatt and I walked into the meeting hall, which was just one room with a large circle of seats. Refreshments and treats sat on the back table. The whole setup looked like an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Mr. Wyatt and I sat down and enjoyed the small chit-chat that happened around the room. Rumor has it that a good thousand or so Mrs. Shirley's slaves escaped. One of the members muttered to the others. I froze, wondering if I would be caught. Oh, shit. How did they get out? Mr. Wyatt asked the group, and the rest of the group responded accordingly. She hasn't told us yet. We're still waiting to hear the word. She's still trying to track them down. Fuck, if I see a charcoal bitch, I'll shoot them on the spot for her. These blacks think they deserve freedom when they deserve to be shot. God, I wish I had money to have slaves. I'd work their ass into the ground. <laughs> I probably not trust any of the black asses. Fuck those swarmy animals. I could feel the room spin a little bit, but thankfully I caught myself. In reality, they were using harsher words than black. Once again, I'd have to play an actor. Unlike the conversation I shared with Miss Shelley, there would be no sympathy among this group. Mr. White had been very nice, but he was nice because I was a white man. What would have happened if Clark King had walked up onto his shack? Before the group could continue making racist remarks, one man stood up to begin the meeting. Well, I think we're ready to start our weekly KKK meeting, the man said, looking around the room at his brethren with a smile. Internally, I was far from smiling. I didn't think this was what Mr. Wyatt meant when he said he wanted to attend a meeting. This seemed far from the casual term, in a twisted way that made it more like a sentence to prison. 
I looked to find that the vast majority of the participants were male, and clearly all were white. Some of them had shaved heads and Aryan pro-Nazi stylization about them. There were tattoos, missing teeth, stained white shirts, piles of fat, terrible facial hair, and apparent laziness among them. Mr. Wyatt was one of the better-appearing men in the group. I wondered if the entire entity of White Town was in this large gathering space. The meeting began, and the group talked about protocol when it came to the capture and the apprehension of Miss Shelley's slaves. On no ground were to any of the KKK members kill Miss Shelley's men because they were Miss Shelley's property. Even though Miss Shelley lived in Dushine and hadn't been in communication with White Town behind the reason of her escaped slaves, Miss Shelley seemed to be a low-key demigoddess of the community. She was perhaps the true leader of this dual-shard piece of rock. Her financial gains and her stature made her formidable. None of the others had anywhere near the regality or power of Miss Shelley. Better to respect such power than to go against it. After a long discussion filled with every racial slayer you could think of, the KKK leader of White Town switched to another topic, this time about stories of blacks and other minorities gaining, quote, rights up in the, quote, north. Everything seemed to be villainized in the world around the poor victims of White Town. Gosh, it's all these fucking minorities which make it hard on us. We get it, you're black, you suck cock, you pray to a different guy, but like, fuck off. You don't deserve to be put on a pedestal for being different. People act like they're so worthy because of their fucking skin color. Get over it. You barely have the right to exist in my mind. I wish some of these bitches were to walk into White Town. I'd give them a piece of my mind and a bullet from my gun. Gignasco doesn't need them, especially because the white man is superior. These monkeys need to learn how to be grateful. If I could get away with it, I could take care of some of them up in Cultura City. Fuck that place. Finally, the meeting was over. I was not introduced to the group, thankfully, and so Mr. Wyatt and I returned shortly thereafter to his cabin. I debated about staying in White Town, but figured I'd rather hide out at Mr. Wyatt's than at White Town. I had yet to be inside his cabin, and so I took advantage to get to understand more of Mr. Wyatt through his home. There were a few books on a shelf in the living room, beneath which was a television, a video game box, and a comfortable-looking couch. The nearby kitchen was well-stocked with all kinds of food. The bedroom had its own door and wall, which separated itself from the rest of the house. The second room was closed, although I assumed it was storage or a guest room. So where do you want to head off next? Mr. Wyatt asked as I continued to look around the room. There were a few photos of which I assumed were of Mr. Wyatt's friends and family. I'm not sure, I confessed. What's north of White Town? The rock to the north is some crackpot town or some shit, Mr. Wyatt confessed. There's a couple more towns to the west and a couple small weird places to the east, but you came from the east, right? I did. Have you visited Miss Shelley's plantation? I haven't. What's that? You all talked about it during the meeting. Miss Shelley. She's the only one around here that actually has slaves. The rest of us, we're just against minorities. Minorities are just not as good as majorities. That's why there's majorities. The best comes with the most. White Town isn't like culture or city where you can be free and have your rights. Here, we celebrate being white. We live by it. I see. I nodded. Are you too poor to have a slave? Not poor per se. I'm not rich, but I'm not poor. Maybe one day I'll get a slave or a few and start a business of some kind. Can't do crops, though, because that's what Miss Shelley does, and no one crosses Miss Shelley, especially not someone who frees her slaves. I paused. 
my internal alarm was going off. Before I could turn and defend myself, Mr. Wyatt knocked me down. My shoulder hit his table before he tackled me to the floor. On the floor, I tried scrambling, but Mr. Wyatt took advantage. You didn't think I knew? Mr. Wyatt grinned as he grabbed me in a chokehold. I tried struggling, but I could feel my energy and life force fading fast. You thought, I thought, you were a mere traveler? The KKK group didn't know shit. I just agree with some of the common themes. I was listening to some of the guards talk about a white guy who freed the slaves. The second I saw your ragamuffin ass, I knew you were the one to free Miss Shelley's slaves. And eventually, I'll turn you back to her. But first, I think I want to personally torture you for freeing those black animals. I could not respond nor escape the grip of Mr. Wyatt, and so... I woke up. I didn't know how long I'd been out, but I could tell that it had been some time as the afternoon coloration of the Gignosco sky had gone violet. I was so used to the sky of Gignosco that I couldn't recall how the Earth's sky appeared. I knew it was blue, but I couldn't picture its overall melding in the way the different blues stuck together with the white wisps of the clouds. That imagery was so peaceful in contrast to my current situation. I was currently naked and tied up to the headboard of a king-sized bed. My skin was covered in a thin layer of sweat while my skin twitched with goosebumps. My clothes were filed neatly in the corner of the room on top of a dresser. I believed I was being housed in the guest room, designed to be applicable to any type of guest and as such was unpersonable and neutral. The cuffs and ties gave me a bit of wiggle room so that my arms didn't lose blood flow or become cramped, but it was apparent that I was limited from leaving the bed. The window showed a crisp forest in darkness. The nightlife of owls and bats flapped away while crickets provided soundtracks with the breeze that danced against my bare skin. I lay awake for a few minutes until the door opened to reveal Mr. Wyatt. He smiled the same way he had smiled when he had introduced himself. The only difference now was that I was tied up and naked within his custody. The light from outside poured in softly. I was able to see everything in the room as though I was wearing sunglasses, and I assumed so could Mr. Wyatt. You found me out, I whispered. But why do you care? They're not your slaves. It's a matter of principle, Mr. Wyatt's bad. Come now, you committed a crime. You stole Miss Shelley's property. You freed black men. I I could look away if you stole her jewelry or her food, but helping black men. Slavery is illegal. Not here. Mr. Wyatt smiled with a little twitch of his index finger. The people of White Town, founded by Miss Shelley's guards and workers, make the rules. Slavery is legal. Crimes committed against black people are legal. Had you freed white men from a black man, we wouldn't be here. In fact, I'd host a party in your honor. But there is no honor in you. You're a traitor of your own race, and for that, well, I'll be your punishment. Mr. Wyatt held up a small object which looked like a sex toy. I was initially confused because I did realize I was naked on a mattress. I quickly became horrified as Mr. Wyatt immediately grabbed my right thigh. What the fuck are you doing? I cried. Get the fuck off me. 
I'm not a torturer, but hell, I'm pretty good at figuring out torture. This was not sexual nor romantic, but devised for punishment. He did this for what seemed to be forever. Mr. Wyatt finally finished, and I could still feel the pain digging into me like rats into rotten flesh. Seeing you in pain like this, <laughs> it gets me going more than anything else. Mr. Wyatt still flashed the same goddamn smile that made me want to punch his teeth in. You're white, but in some ways, you're black. You could have walked away from it, but you had to act like a savior to those beasts. You're trash. Absolutely fucking gutter trash. Please, I whispered, the first time I had ever truly begged for mercy. Stop. This is what you deserve, Mercer. This and so much more. And this is just the first night, Mercer. <laughs> Imagine what's going to happen for the next week or so. I'll let Miss Shelley get riled up to the point where she's going to want information or reward. When I'm through with you, I'll turn you over to her and get the money to buy me slaves. The same type of slaves you asked why I didn't have. I was shivering. The window to my room was open and I lay naked and chained to the headboard of the mattress. My arms hurt due to the limited movement, but that was the least of my worries as my lower body ached with the throbbing pain of the enforcement. Why are you doing this? I whispered. First, the pain of it. Not many men are used to that. <laughs> Mr. White chuckled. It's a painful experience. A good entry into torture. But it makes it easier for the next part. The next part, I questioned, my body thick with fear. Oh, come now. You're smart enough to free a thousand slaves. You have to already understand what happens next. Mr. White cooed as he unzipped his own pants. There was no need to tell you what happens next. You probably could figure it out. It was not embarrassing, per se. It was just difficult to recall in the future what exactly happened. I know what happened, but the details run scarce, and this part doesn't matter. All I could recall down the road was how Clark King's voice arrived to me during Mr. Wyatt's next round of torture. Racism came in the small ways, but it came in the larger ways as well. I remember one night. I was heading home to my wife Yvette in our comfortable house when the most uncomfortable thing happened. A small group of shifty white men began walking behind me. Thankfully I was close to my car and I was able to drive away before they could catch me, but I wondered what they were going to do to me. Maybe they were just fucks, but maybe they would have murdered me. Would it have been a crime of race? A crime of convenience? I couldn't be sure. There was always the deep fear of being targeted. I'd have black family and friends who would come close to death, assault, and rape. I'd be at home with my wife in my arms in our quaint locked house, but I would still feel vulnerable. The next week and a half went by like hell. I couldn't confirm the amount of days, even with the open window. I felt drugged out during this time period, my memory fading in and out as well. Perhaps it was because of exhaustion or the constant state of fear I was in. Either way, I only remember drugs from my time locked up with Mr. Wyatt. He would use me for sex, would whip into me, place out cigarettes on my skin, and would choke, bruise, and assault me. I thought I had a broken rib for a long time, although I, I wasn't sure. I went malnourished and slightly dehydrated, my skin looking clammy as though I was struck with illness. The pain I had felt on my first night melted away. After a while, I didn't feel anything. And when I would feel sexual desire, I would stifle it. 
I felt ashamed for that latter part because I did not consent to anything Mr. Wyatt did, but my body ignored my head. It was weird to me that Mr. Wyatt considered his actions as part of torture against me and not part of the sexuality conundrum against him. I was surprised that he could even get it up for a guy, but perhaps what got Mr. Wyatt going was the power and control element. Perhaps punishing someone for going against the coda of Whitetown was what made him sexually active. Regardless, Mr. Wyatt got bored with me and finally approached me one morning with the threat he had been making since he had taken me down. Miss Shelley is offering a hundred thousand stone for your capture and deliverance. Mr. Wyatt chuckled. You've been great, but I really want that money. Especially before anyone starts, you know, sniffing around here and twists the truth. I never helped the aid of a man like you, but you know that. I didn't say anything, but allowed Mr. Wyatt to handcuff me. He wasn't scared of me, and I don't think he had ever been scared. He could tell I was defeated. He could see it in my movements, in the way my body draped, sprawled on the mattress. I had not left the domain of the mattress, and even as I became uncuffed, I didn't feel the energy to leave my captivity. What is she going to do to me? My voice cracked a few times through my question. I hadn't used it much these last few days. Eh, she's going to kill you. Maybe if we're lucky, she'll do a huge public event like a festival or something. Maybe put you to the stake. Mr. Wyatt continued to add reasons to why I considered him a psychopath. Getting glee from watching my death seemed highly psychopathic to me. I was looking at my executioner, if not directly, then indirectly. Mr. Wyatt was going to take the money and let me burn. This last week and a half had been quite the trial, but for some reason, I found pockets of energy I didn't believe existed. I was unchained, and Mr. Wyatt had his back to me. Using one of the handcuffs, I jumped up and grabbed Mr. Wyatt from behind. I used the handcuffs to press down on his neck. He was going to suffocate, for which the least he deserved, but he would still die. N no! Th this isn't how it's supposed to go! Mr. Wyatt choked out as he ran out of breath. This was it. Yes, it fucking is, I snarled. The life in me seemed to have built from nowhere. I was still wounded and unhealthy, but I was going to survive. I had to survive. I finished choking Mr. Wyatt, and he passed out. I felt for a pulse, but there wasn't one. I pushed Mr. Wyatt off of me and immediately left the bedroom, walking slowly because I hadn't walked in a week and a half. I felt like an infant who was trying to fend for their body in a world they needed to adjust to. I grabbed the sink and poured out water, which I galloped up like a camel at a trough. When that was done, I stumbled to the nearby fridge and began eating food. When that was done, I went over to the living room and fell asleep on the couch and had my first proper sleep in borderline two weeks. When I awoke, it was night once more. Nobody had come to Mr. Wyatt's shack while Mr. Wyatt's corpse still lay in the second room. I put my clothes back on and found that my traveling bag had been thankfully untouched. My gun, map, and emergency escape button, whatever the fuck the agency scientists wanted to call it, was still there. For the first time in a while, I remembered that back on Earth, the agency was watching my experience. They had no doubt seen the last week and a half of torture. Fuck. That experience with Mr. Wyatt wasn't going to be a secret to hide. I turned upwards as if looking to a camera. I'll be okay, I muttered. I'm getting out of here. Once again, I had escaped death within Gignosco. But now I was not the same man. How could I be from that experience? 
How could I expect myself to go unbothered by what had happened in Mr. Wyatt's Caucasian-only shack? I looked over at him, anger bubbling up from my body. He had made me so vulnerable and so weak, all because I had helped free slaves. Fuck him. Fuck Miss Shelley. And fuck this whole little segment of hell. It was time to get off this racist rock. Chapter negative 32, A God Among Thoughts. It didn't take too much to safely get off the large slab of Miss Shelley's plantation and White Town. I snuck through White Town and was able to hear that Miss Shelley was still looking for the man who had displaced half of her slaves. I decided not to stick around, and I continued moving north until the forest cut off right at the edge of the oval-shaped land. I could see a lot of land to the west of where I was at. I saw a little village which Mr. Wyatt had hinted at, a large arched sideways suburbia which seemed to be another village. There were two slabs of rock, one which contained an ancient Greek building, and the other contained a contemporary-designed establishment. Past those two in the southeast of here were crumbling ruins held in hiatus, while south of all of these contained one of the larger settlements. The large land down there appeared red like blood with billowing navy and blue clouds. War appeared to be going on in that district, and I knew that while I may have to enter that land, I still didn't want to. There were many courses of action here. While most of my journey through Gignosco seemed to be linear, this was one of the opportunities where I could choose my own adventure. No doubt, unless I found Clark, I would probably be visiting a majority of these spots. Maybe Clark was in the Middle Realm. There were parts of the Inner Realm I had not visited, and there were parts of the Inner Realm which were so vast, such as Cultura City and the Awakening Jungle, or peculiar, like the lavender plant in the Three Wise Monkey's Rock or the destroyed area of the Fallout. But I had land somewhere to explore, and so I headed northwest to the small village settlement. I was not up to my full speed yet. I was still dealing with the injuries I had obtained during my imprisonment and torture by the hands of the now-killed Mr. Wyatt. I moved in silence, with no companion and no desire to talk. I missed the goody-two-shoes attitude of Rodney, the steely presence of Helena Price. James Du Bois and Jerome Barkley had also been welcomed companions, both who died because of me and my stupid goals. I didn't blame myself, but all these amazing people had been defeated for a cause they barely knew. They didn't get to know the truth. They were blinded by my vagueness, my slight dishonesty. But to know the truth, it would drive them mad. Thankfully, the rock hosting both Miss Shelley's plantation and White Town was behind me. I was close to this new village now. I had easily twisted to the proper angle and was close. Behind me, I could see plenty of the canopy of forests which surrounded White Town before in the far distance becoming Miss Shelley's fields. This upcoming village was built around a large statue which was made out of white stone. Around the village and covering the rock was a thick green grass which sparkled like water. I landed on the edge of the rock and moved forward to the village. Children ran with glee in what seemed to be tag. I was grateful to see children of all ethnicities. It made me feel like White Town and Mr. Wyatt were in a whole different world. The children eyed me with curiosity, all of them dressed in purple robes. None of them approached me, and so I came into town. There was a person at the edge of town who seemed to watch the front of the town and the kids. Oh, hello, guest, the man smiled, also dressed in a purple robe. He had a goatee and thick black hair while his naturally happy demeanor washed over me with ease. Welcome to the Avidya settlement. From where are you from? I'm from Dahlia Village. Oh my, you've come a long way, the man gasped. Well, welcome. I am one of the town's gatekeepers, Gatekeeper Lindsay. I'm Sidney Mercer. We shook hands and Gatekeeper Lindsay began to walk with me into town. 
I noticed that gatekeeper Lindsay had a gun on his hip, as well as a flashlight and cuffs. I suppose being a gatekeeper also implied he was a cop. Tell me about Avidya, I asked. Oh, we have been here for such a long time. Gatekeeper Lindsay sighed. All thanks to God. Who is God? Well, he's right here. Gatekeeper Lindsay chuckled, pointing to the statue. The statue, which I had seen from a distance away, was grand. It was the biggest thing within the entire settlement and stood probably 30 feet high. Like the citizens of Avidya who moved with grace, God wore a robe which covered his body tightly. To the citizens of Avidya, they saw God as God. But I looked at the makeup of God and could only see Clark King in his 30s, perhaps. I could recognize his build and facial looks, even within the white stone he was concocted out of. Is this statue a symbol, or is that actually God? That is God. Gatekeeper Lindsay smiled, as if he had introduced me to a casual dish of buffalo dip and not implied that the Avidya settlement worshipped a statue. How is that a god? Not that, but God. Gatekeeper Lindsay chuckled. Goodness, Sydney, we are welcome to non-believers, but please be proper when you speak of God. How do you know that God is a God? Because God is. That doesn't sound convincing. Why are you arguing with me? Gatekeeper Lindsay asked, looking confused. This is just who we are. There's too much to tell when it came to work. One day I'd be hacking into our enemies' databases. One day I'd be hacking into our own people. Sometimes I'd work on building up projects that seemed unbelievable even in modern standards. The 21st century had slowly turned around, even after all the YK2 comments and catastrophes, but there we were, still living and still experiencing. I had dealt with conformity, with change, pressure, with hatred. But there was a common theme to most of these issues, ignorance. As I continued to battle up the ranks and continue my work with the government, I realized that ignorance came in so many forms. There was the ignorance by lack of experience, the ignorance by personal bias, the ignorance of stupidity, the ignorance of common sensibility. It continued to haunt my colleagues. I tried my best to rise above it, but sometimes it was hard to watch. I had seen co-workers and superiors act with a combination of ignorance. They'd stupidly commit to a program due to pride, arrogance, or desire. There was a lot of individuality and people would compete. But competition could bring out the worst. Some got fired for trying to be the best only because in an effort to beat their colleagues, they had let the rival team win. In the federal government, and I assume most businesses, everyone is supposed to be the MVP. But sometimes when you showboat, you actually slam your boat into an iceberg into the process. This is a statue. It's not a real being. Just because you think that way doesn't mean I have to. Gatekeeper Lindsay snarled, looking really inflamed. A few of the citizens of the Avidya settlement were watching with intrigue. Some of them looked extremely pissed off like Gatekeeper Lindsay, while others looked shaken, as if my statements had put their faith in doubt. I suppose this was the form of ignorance presented for Clark King's mind. These people worshipped a statue as a god. There seemed to be nothing more ignorant than that, truly. It was an, the epitome, in a way. I was very angry and pressed at the moment, most likely because of the situation with Mr. Wyatt. I was letting Mr. Wyatt's torture and rape tactics turn me into a raging, hardened heart. But for some reason, I didn't care. I didn't care that I was being insulting or blasphemous. I was just not in the mood to deal with this bullshit, especially someone like Gatekeeper Lindsay, who looked like a total nutjob. But what has it done to prove that it's God? Does it need to prove anything? It just is. Do you realize how ignorant you sound? 
I demanded from Gatekeeper Lindsay. You all praise this statue blindly. It's not a spirit, nor is it alive. I get praying to a spirit, or a god you might perceive in the air or in heaven, or whatever bullshit makes you happy, but this, this is beneath all of that. You put your love and adoration into an object, into something that has not nor will ever love you, guide you, be there for you. How will this thing protect you? How will it do anything for you? You don't know it, and it has no capacity to know you. Gatekeeper Lindsay punched me in the jaw. Just five minutes ago, I was being welcomed into the Avidya settlement, and now I was being taken on in battle. Immediately, I slugged Gatekeeper Lindsay as the crowd watched in silent horror. The fight continued for a while, both of us with our raised fists and punches. It got to a point where I decided to fuck all of it. I pushed Gatekeeper Lindsay into the statue, which turned out to be a huge mistake. By slamming Gatekeeper Lindsay into the statue, I caused the entire statue to tip. I don't understand how the large statue was that easy to tip, but it did. The statue fell backwards, and as the Avidya settlement citizens began to scream and move out of the way, God slammed into the grassy ground of the rock and obliterated into a billion pieces. The substance looked to be some kind of glass as shards and chunks littered the entire floor. Immediately, the entire settlement began screaming as Gatekeeper Lindsay turned to me as though I had destroyed the world. You destroyed God! Gatekeeper Lindsay snarled. You destroyed the one thing we had, the one thing which protected us and made us happy. It was a fucking statue, I snarled. Gatekeeper Lindsay pulled out his gun, but immediately I bolted into the crowd. The entire purple-robed community was in hectics. Most of the citizens were crying, some sitting or laying on the grass. A few had passed out and gone unconscious, while others were speechless and still like they had witnessed a ghost. I could not imagine their feelings or otherwise thoughts. They had believed in God their entire existence, both personally and in their society. With one cheap fight, the statue had come tumbling down. The worst kind of ignorance is the ignorance that doesn't try to be better. It's the ignorance which is blissfully happy at being ignorance, the kind that doesn't evolve but stays stationary. It reminded me of my opinions regarding prejudice, regarding conformity. I watched it at work within my co-workers. It made me so glad to just go home to a loving wife. Had I been single or friendless, I think I would have gone mad, just as mad as the ignorant who allow their ignorance to be blinding. There is nothing more dangerous than a man who has passion but is blinded from executing it properly. None of the citizens stopped me, because perhaps they weren't sure I had tumbled down God, or perhaps they were scared. If I could easily destroy their God, then I could no doubt destroy them as well. After slowly departing the village, I began running across more open green. There were kids in the field as well, although they all stared in silence at where the statue of God used to be. I didn't stop to talk, but I could hear them amongst each other. Where is God? Did God leave us? When will God be back? No, God can't be dead. I could smell the therapy sessions for these children, even as I sped past them and climbed. I could see the arch suburbia and figured that would be my next stop. I didn't have too much time to stop and choose my next place. I needed to get out of town. But before I could jump off the edge of the cliff, there came a crackling pop, and I could feel a bullet tear through my arm. I turned around, gripping my right arm, bullet wound with my left. Gatekeeper Lindsay had managed to track me down, even among the chaos I had presented. Gatekeeper Lindsay's body was shaking, which led me to be surprised the bullet had made its mark. 
Gatekeeper Lindsay looked absolutely destroyed, his face appearing clammy and his attitude almost deranged. He appeared to be barely surviving his consciousness in flux due to the destruction of God. That statue was our God, Gatekeeper Lindsay whispered. His gun pointed on me, tears streaming down his face. How could you do that? How could you take our God away from us? That was not God, I cried. That was an object. Stop lying! Gatekeeper Lindsay screamed once more. Using his emotional status against him, I immediately tackled into Gatekeeper Lindsay, whose gun flew out of his grip. We both fell onto the grassy plain and engaged into a tussle. Gatekeeper Lindsay used his hand to tear into my bullet wound and I cried out. We both got up off the ground and the fisticuffs continued. I could feel his anger through his movements, the loss of his god, my destruction, his own dedication to what was now gone. I could feel my anger, the anger of not finding Clark, of being raped and tortured for Mr. Wyatt, the anger of this fucked up Gignasco. Finally, with one hefty punch, I caused Gatekeeper Lindsay to land back a few yards. I pulled out my own gun from my bag and aimed it at Gatekeeper Lindsay. Shoot, Gatekeeper Lindsay spat. Everything I know has been destroyed. Why, why does it matter? You are more than a statue you deem a god, I muttered. You have to know that. I don't fucking care. You should, I begged. Please. Don't see this as the end of your world. See this as a beginning. I said to shoot. I'm not going to shoot you. Without another word, Gatekeeper Lindsay rolled over to grab his own gun. I wasn't sure what was going to happen, but before I could react, Gatekeeper Lindsay committed suicide right in front of me. He fell over like a stuffed animal which couldn't control itself, while the lush green grass shone bright with blood and not dew. From the distance, I could hear shrill screams of children who had witnessed Gatekeeper Lindsay's own killing. The smoking gun embedded within the white knuckle clutch of a broken man. A man I had broken. Or perhaps Gatekeeper Lindsay had allowed himself to become broken by being reliant on his image of God. No matter what, Clark was definitely not here among the Avidya settlement. I ran off the side of the rock and immediately headed to the nearby Arch Twisted, some kind of suburbia. I could feel my heart beat steadily and I tried to control it. I used part of my t-shirt to tie up the wound, the same t-shirt that had managed to survive since the beginning when I awoke in the neon forest. Well, this new t-shirt that I had thought of, it didn't matter. The t-shirt had seen better days, and after a small eternity of a slow walk, I arrived on the edge of suburbia right in a small park nearby plenty of homes. The homes were a bit small, as if I was suddenly a large giant. Before I could question this rock and its meaning, I fell over, still clutching a bloody arm wound. My eyes were flickering with blinks like a strobe light, and I was able to see figures who seemed to be coming towards me in the distance. I hoped, prayed even, that these people were not going to injure me or hold me captive. My thoughts ceased. I closed my eyes and soon faded away. Chapter negative 33, Darkness Among Darkness. I do not recall anything from the time I fell unconscious to the time when I woke up. But arriving back to conscious was a slow process. My brain reloaded like a restarted computer as thoughts drove themselves together and my eyes cracked open like Earth's tectonic plates. The blurred vision and the half-lopsided thoughts shifted to normality. I slowly looked around with my normal mind to find I was tucked away in a perfect hospital room. A curtain surrounded my bed while the sheets felt warm with my body heat. 
The ambience included the slow whir of hospital machinery along with the chatter and hubbub of life outside my cubicle. I wondered where exactly I was. I didn't know much about the land I had fainted on. Before I could act on my perception, Clark King acted upon me. Yvette was my world, my light, my savior. We were bound together in public ceremony as husband and wife. My friends and family adored our union through their support and admiration. I still remember the banquet hall, lit up with laughter, dancing, and vibing. We were celebrating a familial bond, all of us grasping with our literal and figurative hands. The next couple years went by, and not to sound cliche, but it was amazing. I was in bliss, the kind of bliss my parents had shared before my mother's passing, the kind of happiness we think doesn't exist anymore and seems so rare. I had the rarity, although I would soon lose it. At the time, I couldn't understand any of what happened, but I suppose I still don't understand it. I opened the curtain around my bed and immediately obtained a glimpse of the hospital surroundings. Every living human being that I could see was nothing more than a baby. Normally there would be human adults running and walking around the hospital, but all of the people in the hospital had been replaced with babies dressed accordingly. I could see some babies dressed in doctor's clothing, others in nurse scrubs, and more who were visitors, guests, and patients. All of the babies ranged from 9 to 13 months old. The hospital's architecture was still rather large considering I was housed within a place made for and by babies. Even my bed was made for a human being. But even though the space could fit me, most of the things within the space did not. The machines, bed and equipment, and miscellaneous sizing was placed for the comfort of a baby. It was as though a human life had shrunk, and they had took their possessions with them. I was not alone in the room. There was an unconscious year-old child who was hooked up to a few machines. His breath was aided by an oxygen tank, while a few flowers and framed photos appeared next to him. I studied the child for a few seconds before turning to find two nurses beside me. They looked like puppets next to my bed, standing on an elevated platform, which was connected to a small ramp which gave them access to my chamber. One baby was white, while the other black. Both had short hair, and neither seemed gendered at all beneath their mint green scrubs. Oh, he's awake! The white baby cooed, while its fat face morphed with the English language. It seemed impossible that such advanced language and splendid grammar could derive from a baby. We should get the doctor! Honey, you can get the doctor. I'm going to check out his paperwork. The black nurse grabbed a small clipboard and began writing notes. The scene was hard to comprehend considering that these babies should barely have mastered crawling, let alone be walking, reading, writing, and speaking. A minute of silence passed. I was too paralyzed to address any of my questions to the remaining nurse. The white nurse returned with a young baby, geared up with a doctor's robe, and adorned with a small stethoscope around his neck. Ah, so you're back with us, the doctor baby chuckled as the nurses nodded in agreement. Sir, I'm Dr. Stanford. Why the hell are you babies? Oh, you must not know about us, do you? Dr. Stanford chuckled. Here in our little town, this is natural. We're all young. This is beyond young, I muttered. Those are babies who act like, like, like adults. That's this whole slab of rock. Dr. Stanford nodded. It's been this way since the start of time, and it'll be this way till the end of time. Now then, you seem to be better. We patched up your injuries, especially that bullet wound. We brought you back up to full hydration and even prepared a new shirt for you. What's your name? The nurses had fully removed the curtain and I saw my outfit all pristine before me. I was wearing a paper dress to be expected considering I had been comatose in a hospital. I'm Sydney. Great to figure out the remaining puzzle piece, Sydney. I think you're free to go. Dr. Stanford shrugged, his fat baby shoulders rolling beside his head. 
I don't get to treat a full on human often. Before Dr. Stanford could continue, the baby in the bed next to me imploded. The baby's body tightened and compressed in a matter of milliseconds before turning into a small pile of human remains. The small bed had been turned into a funeral casket as a pile of flesh stuck to the sheets with blood and overall liquefied presence. The entire affair caused me to yell, although the two nurses and doctor didn't say shit as they approached the smaller baby level bed. I eavesdropped upon the interaction that began between the three alive babies. We knew his time was close, the black nurse sighed. Flo, can you call down to the morgue? Flo, the white nurse, left the room while Dr. Stanford examined the body. I stood up out of my bed, the paper dress exposing my ass and the back to the rest of the floor. My head was only inches away from touching the ceiling, which accommodated me, but didn't allow for much wiggle room. What the hell happened? I asked, looking at Dr. Stanford. Why the man died? Dr. Stanford's response was cold and calculated, as if the baby's death was less complex than it truly was. Death was looked at through the lens of the ordinary, something that bothered me. Death was natural, no doubt. I wouldn't argue that. But there was nothing ordinary about the way the baby died. No ordinary regarding the baby's unexperienced life. But why did he die? And why did he die like that? I asked, referring to the internal explosion that had just occurred. We all die like that here. Dr. Stanford was too casual for my taste. He clearly lacked the social skills that a good chunk of those in healthcare disregarded. Dr. Stanford was the type of man, or in this case, baby, who would use reason and science over emotion while talking to a grieving parent or relative. All of us implode. We don't live long, only months if we're lucky. Are you kidding me? I asked before hearing the sound of another implosion nearby. The sound from the first implosion left a scar, the kind that you couldn't easily forget. I couldn't tell where this second implosion was coming from. Is this normal? Yes, it is, Sydney. Dr. Stanford continued to eye me with borderline nihilism. Most people die out like that out here on the streets in their homes. We don't have too much sickness around here, but this is usually life and death. I put on my clothes while Dr. Stanford wrote some notes regarding the dead baby to my left. You said I could go, right? I asked, grabbing my bag and verifying it was all there. Absolutely. We removed the ball from your shoulder. It's like it wasn't even there. Dr. Stanford smiled. Have a good one. It was the quickest discharge that ever happened in the history of all hospital visits ever. Most likely, Dr. Stanford recognized that there was nothing wrong with me and decided that life was better spent outside of a hospital if possible, especially if life was only a couple months long. I walked through the hospital and saw a couple more implosions as the bodies of the babies turned into small fleshy piles. It was especially disgusting because I was not used to this. The other babies acted like this was normal, which no doubt it was. I stepped outside the hospital and looked at the sign which read, Fetusville Hospital. This place is named Fetusville? I said out loud, more in personal belief than in public skepticism. I left the hospital property and walked to the downtown strip, which began with shops and restaurants. The buildings were large enough for my entry, but most of the innards were built for babies. The tables where the babies at dinner were filled with plates the size of CDs and forks that were only as long as two inches. The shops sold baby clothing, baby-sized appliances, books which were printed the size of pocket dictionaries, cans of food which were the size of thick glue sticks. I walked in shock and continued to walk as Clark King finally connected his puzzle for me. I could tell that something was wrong that night. The normal crisp townhouse we had inhabited seemed emptier. Moonlight bounced in and out of the house like a rubber ball while I could sense a change in Yvette that I could not pinpoint. She was like a dog who had done something wrong and I, the owner, could not communicate directly to discern the wrongdoing. I asked her and she refused to speak. But I suppose she was haunted, so, so haunted that she woke me up at four in the morning to confess that she had had an abortion. 
I was in absolute distraught. She had made this decision without me, most likely because she knew I would refuse it. I'd always wanted a child of my own, just like most humans do. But she had ripped that possibility away from me. I tried to get over it. I wanted to believe this wasn't as bad as it sounded. I hoped that it, was as, it, it wasn't as gruesome as I imagined. I went to work. I did everything normal, but nothing felt normal. I saw children and wondered how they had survived their parents' own inevitable madness. I saw my child. Had he or she lived and not been killed by Yvette, and I think deep down I wanted to admit I could not get over her action. But it took a while to get to that point. Many dinners of silence. Many forced conversations which trailed off into nothingness. Many separate nights at couches and beds apart. We further drifted apart. I wanted nothing to do with her. I think she realized and accepted that fact. We were never going to recover, were we? Fetusville made sense. It was a summation of the thoughts and feelings Clark King had experienced after finding out his wife had an abortion. This place looked so cheery, with infant babies dressed and acting like adults, but it was truly a visual design for pain. I couldn't imagine being Clark King and having to walk through Fetusville. This was quite an accurate depiction of what life was like for him upon finding out Yvette had killed his child. Every child, every baby... Every teenager reminds me of the kid I would have had. It stings like ice-cold needles designed for acupuncture but implemented for pain. My child was not taken by the will of a higher power or by some stranger. My child did not live outside the womb, nor were they taken by some unknown force. My child was taken by the love of my life. I was now outside the town hall of Thetisville. I looked back at all the shops and buildings, each decadent and drawn with cute perfection, albeit of a child. I saw a couple infants implode, which I suppose was a regularity around here that I would never get accustomed to. I turned my head and entered town hall. Oh, hello! The receptionist giggled, revealing a couple baby teeth and a lot of gum. (laughs) Welcome to Thetisville. Have you been enjoying your stay? I guess, I shrugged. Can I see the mayor or president? (laughs) Let me ring him. The receptionist picked up the phone and went to work, trying to reach the boss while I looked around the lobby. A few citizens and city employees moved around with no purpose. Everyone appeared lethargic in the casual way where you could get away with slow movements and a calm tongue. I felt the opposite way about their vibe. I felt impatient and quick, and I could not help but wonder who was going to be the next to die. A small baby came up to me dressed in a suit. I'm Mayor Jeffrey, the baby cooed as we shook hands the best we could. Come follow me to my office. I'm Sydney, I responded, although Mayor Jeffrey had already began the walk back to his headquarters. As we walked through the lobby, an older baby, about 13 months, fell over and imploded. I looked at the body with horror while the spectacle of babies called in emergency services for a pickup for their morgue. Mayor Jeffrey did not stop nor comment, but continued leading me to the end of the lobby. We did not take the stairs or the elevator, but arrived at a room, which was the kingpin of town hall. Come now, Mayor Jeffrey waved his hand and ushered me to sit. Would you like a drink? What are you offering? Uh, How about some whiskey on rocks with a big splash of lime? Why not? I shrugged as Mayor Jeffrey poured me a glass. It's been a while since I've had a large human like you in my office. Mayor Jeffrey handed me the alcohol while he enjoyed his own drink. What's the occasion for the visit? I guess I was just walking and I got here, 
I admitted, sipping from the whiskey pint-sized glass the size of an extra-large paperclip. I walked in, and, well, I figured I would talk to you. What do you want to talk about? Mayor Jeffrey asked as he sat back at his desk. Everything upon the desk looked like it would back in Earth, except that it had been placed in a shrink ray. The picture frames, the stapler, the divider of clips, tacks, and tape, and everything within was made with an infant in mind. We have to do something, I whispered with a voice that didn't know why I was speaking, with a concern I didn't understand why I was feeling, and with a bravado of seriousness that I never had tasted in my own mouth. All these people, all of you guys, you, you guys just die. Yes, that's what happens here. You grow old and you die. Mayor Jeffrey eyed me like I was crazy. I know you're unused to that, but here we perish at the old age of 13, 14, maybe 15 months. Our bodies just can't take any more age than that. That's not natural. You could become full human adults, all of you. You need to let the natural way happen, Sydney. This isn't natural. To you, no, this is not natural, but to us it is. I'm sorry, but I do have a council meeting to get to. Mayor Jeffrey stood up and shuffled to the door like a distressed penguin seeking shelter from my emotion. I immediately followed after placing the small drinking glass on Mayor Jeffrey's liquor table. Mayor, I'm sorry, Sydney, but I don't have time to tackle your fantasies, Mayor Jeffrey explained as he moved through town hall. Please, enjoy your stay, and let me know if you have any real concerns. Mayor Jeffrey opened the door to a conference room filled with a respectable amount of people. I looked to see all sorts of infants sitting down and ready to plan government policy. Before I could counter, one of the members sitting on the sidelines imploded. His body went from a solid mass into a jello mess as everyone casually looked on. This is normal, Mayor Jeffrey argued as we both looked at the implosion zone of the citizen. I'm honored that you care about us and about our township, Sydney, but death for our kind comes like a summer sunset, a blinding flash of color before extinction into the afterlife. Don't fret about us. Just let it be, because it has to be. Mayor Jeffrey turned and sat down at the head of the Fetusville City Council. I watched as paramedics soon came on site to bring the gelatinous remains back to the morgue. Such death mirrored abortion in many ways, and I was so overcome that I ran out of Fetusville's town hall and out of the entire village as well. Thanks so much for listening. For more podcasts created by Steadfast Media Company, check out our website at steadfastmedia.home.blog or join us on Twitter at SteadfastMCO. That's at SteadfastMCO. And at the end of this 10-part series, I'll be releasing the text in novel form. But until next time...